Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, this is that day in the month when we get to listen to a lecture that was given here at Beeson Divinity School, and today we get to hear one of our Reformation Heritage Lectures from this past fall given by the Most Reverend Dr. Benjamin Quashi. Benjamin Quashi is the Bishop of the Anglican Diocese of Jos in Nigeria, in Africa. We ask him to talk about the impact of the Reformation in Africa. And he does that in this lecture with special reference to the role of the Bible and how Scripture has played such a formative role in the development of Christianity in Africa generally and in Nigeria in particular. Oh, we had a wonderful time with this great servant of Jesus Christ, Archbishop Kwashi. At the very beginning, he mentions his wife, Gloria. She was not able to come with him to Beeson on this visit. We hope to have them both back in the future, perhaps. But he does mention a book about Gloria. It's called Gloria, the Archbishop's Wife. And if you want to know more about both Gloria and the Archbishop and their remarkable ministry in Africa, I recommend that book to you, Gloria, the Archbishop's Wife available from Zondervan. Let's go now to Hodges Chapel and listen to this great preacher, this great leader in God's church in Africa, the Most Reverend Dr. Benjamin Kwashi. Good morning, friends. I've been asked to say a few things about myself, which is a very difficult thing to do in 40 minutes. Um, If I'm going to do that, I'll do that in an hour, and then we'll not have a lecture. But I will, I will strongly recommend that you just buy the book because in, in the book, in Gloria's book, I did not come out well in that book. And I really don't want to say it myself. So you read it, but by that time I'm gone. So whatever you think of me, that will be your trouble. But um, I was born in a Christian home. <clears throat> My father was... Uh, a church missionary teacher. He was trained by the CMS in 1928. And um, in the north of Nigeria, at least, he was one of the earliest to get, he was probably the first to get a grade two Cambridge teacher certificate. So he was a headmaster, which was a terrible thing for me. Uh, If your father is a teacher, then you're dead and buried especially in those days, because he had to make each one of us, all his children, except the last, our last born, um, he was old and retired and didn't have much energy to teach us English. He taught us English at home. So every English I speak now, blame Mr. Kwashi. He taught us to read King James. That was what was available in those days. And Shakespeare. So we read from thou cameth, whither thou goeth, and wentest thou whence, and all of those. That was how we were raised. So at age 17, when I finished military school, I felt the freedom from the rigid regimentation of morning and evening prayer at home. And you went to school, it was a mission school, you morning and evening prayer, and religion was too much. And 
Then I went off. But a year and a half later, the Lord met me in the city of Lagos, uh, where I was working. And someone led me to Christ. His name is Brother Dominic. Okay. And he was witnessing in the streets. And I made the eternal good mistake of stopping to listen to him. In 10 minutes, my life was changed. And so I come from a background of a firm belief that I need to witness any time in my life because I just don't know whom the Lord will save. And then I met Gloria in seminary and we got married in 1983 and we have six children. Our oldest is a physician. She's a missionary. She just resigned from rural work uh, some six months ago. She wants to specialize in pediatrics because that's the need she feels God is calling her. She has served in Niger, in Naomi, in the SIM hospital there. She has served, she's been in Kenya, she's been in, uh, in Uganda. Uh, she's very passionate about children. Uh, that's her call. The second is a young man. He's a priest. He's also a missionary. He's served in South Africa. He's served in Uganda. And only just recently came back from the invitation of Bishop Rennes in Singapore and came back last week. Um, he's a priest. He's an evangelist. The third is also a fine evangelist. He's an um, automobile engineer. He's serving in the Northeast right now. And uh, probably when he returns, I don't know what his life will be like, but he, that's where he's serving for a year. The fourth is in medical school. He's also, he believes God is calling him to an ordained ministry after his training. And the fifth is a wonderful girl. She looks exactly like my mother, petite, black, and beautiful. Uh, she's uh, a lawyer. Um, she's currently doing a law school to be called to bar. And the sixth is the tallest of them all. He's about 6'1 at 17, so we don't know how he'll end. Uh, <laughs> He's in a veterinary school. To, he's doing his DVM to be a veterinary doctor. So those are the six children we have. Uh, two girls and four boys. And Gloria is, uh, is I, don't, I spoke with her just now. And um, she wants to tell me so many things and I want her to listen to me. But I guess that's what happens to women when they get older. They, they don't want to listen. They want to tell you stuff. Because <laughs> they... They, they're used to telling children everything. I said, Gloria, listen. She said, no, 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 you listen to me. This is what's going on. I said, Gloria, people want to see you. She said, no, I'm very busy here now. <laughs> anyway. But, but, but when they get older, they want to mother everybody, including the husband. So I think I'm learning that now, after 33 years of marriage. But she's a brilliant woman. I think that only she and God know what they're doing. That's honestly I can't keep pace with Gloria she's something else she's something else um, I didn't know what I was marrying when I proposed to her um, she was very shy and um, anything I said she was yes 
And if I, if I did a mistake, she would sit down and cry. And I used to say, oh, no, don't cry. Oh, Gloria, please. She said, no, and all that. It was fun. But now I'm the one crying. <laughs> I want to look at the Bible in the life of the Nigerian church today. That's my first lecture, and I think that what I want to do is to take us through it so that we'll have sufficient time for questions and answers. But let me read to you a quotation in my opening by Owen Chadwick, and this is what he says. A more educated ministry, a ministry which preaches constantly, where the pulpit is the pastor's joy, Unthrone, a ministry which ever sucks at the study of the Bible and the fathers. And let me just pause a little bit to say this that I forever am grateful to God that I was born in the north of Nigeria amongst Muslims. They are a blessing to my life, much as they want to kill me, but I learn a lot from them. Because you couldn't be a leader of a mosque to lead prayers and be elected to be the elected leader of the mosque, the imam, until and unless you could recite the Quran, the 60 chapters of it, then you are qualified. But in the church, we ordain people who cannot memorize five verses. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing when a pastor cannot read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation at least once a year. It's a terrible thing. And so for us in the north of Nigeria, it's our routine. We read the Bible once a year with my pastors and I take them through their post questions on WhatsApp or on text messages. We just go through the Bible again and again annually annually and until I retire that is the routine otherwise we don't qualify to teach it in these words of Owen describes the handbooks for the clergy at the time of reformation contrasting them with similar handbooks produced 200 years earlier in the later middle ages as these words indicate, one of the outstanding characteristics of the Reformation was the insistence on the, on the knowledge and the use of the Bible. And the true application of this to the lives of both clergy and laity. This meant that the Bible had to be studied, to be taught, to be preached, and to be lived. And for this to happen successfully, it had to be in the language of the people. Hence, the Reformation shows us an increased emphasis upon preaching, sometimes with sermons lasting up to two hours or even three. I do not debate and argue with the psychologists in 
talking about the lifespan of the attention of human beings. But I think the Bible has something about it that you could listen to for a long time. If it is preached correctly. It is this aspect of the Reformation heritage that I wish to concentrate upon this week because it is the primacy of Scripture which has greatly influenced and determined the growth and development of the church in Africa and especially in Nigeria where I live and work. It must be realized that despite the flourishing of the Christian church in North Africa at the time of Augustine, Christianity did not spread widely and at the time of the European Reformation, um, Nigeria and much of Africa was pagan or in some areas Muslim. This is not the time or space for history of the church in Africa. And for that, I will refer you to Adrian Hastings. I shall limit myself to the church in Nigeria, which particularly reference to the Anglican Communion, and in postures of our concern for the influence of Reformation as we shall consider today. So I've broken this into three parts. First of all, the use and influence of the Bible. But secondly, the necessity for good biblical preaching and teaching. And finally, um, I will highlight some of the challenges of that in our time. So first of all, the use and influence of the Bible. The vision statement of the Church of Nigeria, Anglican Communion as a whole, is absolutely clear in the priority it gives to the Bible. And here is our vision statement. The Church of Nigeria shall be Bible-based, spiritually dynamic, United, disciplined, self-supporting, committed to pragmatic evangelism, social welfare, and a church that epitomizes the genuine love of Jesus Christ. Now, following from that, in our own Diocese of Joss, here is our own mission statement. I quote, Seeking to fulfill the biblical mandate of the church, and to accomplish the vision of the Church of Nigeria, we, Just Diocese, desire to be a center for world missions and a place for authentic Bible learning and teaching. And we're strategically placed in Jos, we're in the north, but central part of the north on top of a hill. And we believe that we, we, are, we are the best part of the world. We believe, we believe that. Because the headquarters of Plato State is spelled JOS, J-O-S. And is the only city with that acronym which stands for Jesus, our Savior. So, so you'll never forget that. So we, we, we believe that you know, it's God's providence that we're there. And we want to uphold the Bible so that from Joss we go to the whole world and the whole world will come to Joss. And it is true because SIM headquarters is in Joss. Um, Navigator headquarters is in Joss. Campus Crusade headquarters is in Joss. Um, SUM headquarters is in Joss. 
uh, name it, any missions in Nigeria, any missions in Nigeria have their headquarters in Jaws. So we prayed through and found that if we put the Bible at the center of our life in Jaws, we will be a center for teaching and learning. Similarly, Jai Parker, in seeking to define the Anglican communion, said this. First, the Anglican, Anglicanism is biblical. Anglicanism says to the world, show us anything in scripture that should be taught, and we are not teaching, and we will teach it. Show us anything we're teaching that is contrary to scripture, and we will stop teaching it. The Bible, straightforwardly interpreted as revelation from God through human writers, is the Anglican rule of faith. Now, it is painfully clear that the position has been seriously challenged in recent years. But this is where we stand as Anglicans in just diocese, in the Church of Nigeria as a whole. And I do not intend to debate this matter here and now, but rather to indicate that some of the historical circumstances uh, and present conditions which makes this position not only tenable, but also necessary. As I indicated yesterday, the situation of the church in Nigeria is historically very different from the church in the West. First uh, of all, the church in Nigeria is much younger and therefore doctrinally and administratively has to come, has to move a very long way in a very short time. Secondly, this means that the more recent religious background of traditional religion has played and continues to play an influence, influential role. The situation, therefore, needs to be met not with vague or potentially confusing debates, but with solid, clear teaching, which can become the basis of the lives of the people who are coming face to face with opposition, ridicule, and temptation together with poverty, persecution, poor political governance, diseases, and a little or no basic amenities of life. This is the scenario in much of Africa and in many other parts of the world today. The insistence upon a clear presentation of the gospel is in line with preaching, teaching, and manner of living of the apostles as shown in the New Testament. And for the sake of time, let me give just one example. Romans 1, verse 16 and 17. And Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written. The one who is righteous will live by faith. Now in these two verses, Paul encapsulates the central core of his theology and of his way of life. Remember that this, is remarkable, this remarkable man had not just been a non-Christian, but a fanatical, militant activist committed to the extermination of the Christian church and to the total eradication of the Christian faith. After his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus, he was totally changed 
His whole life was thereafter given to the, not eradication of the gospel, but proclaiming the gospel. He became eager to preach to as many people as he could reach, including the Romans, the colonial overlords, despised and hated by many of his people. This was for Paul, as it is for many today, a task which needs courage. Paul, however, emphasizes that he's not ashamed of the gospel. No. It is this gospel which has the power to change lives and even to change prevailing circumstances, political or otherwise. Paul speaks from personal experience. He knows how a person of another faith can totally be changed and transformed by the gospel. The gospel is power. Dynamite. There is no doubt about what the gospel is. And friends, I'm a living testimony. Because from my home, my mother, wonderful, smallish, petite woman, she was a pastor's child. And her father was a gentleman, nice Christian pastor, evangelist of the first order. He evangelized most of the churches in my home area. A well-known evangelist. Quiet, but powerful. In fact, when he died, people didn't know because he had just gone to open a new church on his bicycle and he came to rest under a tree and he'd gone to be with the Lord. And evening, people were greeting a corpse without knowing. So uh, my grandmother said, where's your granddad? We said, well, he's resting under the tree only to go and find that he'd gone. So my mother wanted me to, 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 to be a a Christian child. She was desperate for that to happen. And, and, and I was born the way I was. <laughs> totally opposite to my grandfather, whom she knows. He was a quiet man. I was a noisy character. I was too many for the village. I broke the windows. I climbed all the trees. My goats didn't like me. I didn't like them either. You know, I was all over every day in trouble. And my mother would always say, Benji, Benji. She would pray and cry with her mother. She, she, she prayed. She prayed. And it's one of the reasons why I want to get to heaven. Why God answers the prayers of women more than men. I think we need to discuss that. We need to discuss that with God when I get there. But that's what my, my mother was so worried about me. And so by the time I left home, she, she prayed. I don't know how, but people said she, in the fellowship, women's fellowship, would get up to, please pray for my son Benji. He's gone to the world. He's going. And sometimes I would come back and she would remind me, if you don't receive Jesus Christ, you will go to hell, and I would, you would conclude it for us. Mommy, I know I'm going to hell. Don't worry. We're going. We're many of us, so just relax. Many of us are going to hell. Don't worry about that. But this day I came back, and she noticed a totally different person. Jesus changed my life. 
I don't care what books you read. I don't care what theologies you hold. I'm not interested in where you're coming from, whichever scholarship you're coming. I know that Jesus saved me. I know that. And the power of the gospel cannot be diminished by arguments. I insist on conversion in the Diocese of Jaws. I believe that given the chance, people will repent and turn to God through Jesus Christ. So Paul preached this. Let me say that although you here take it for granted, you know, Bible is in English and all of that, you know, we didn't write any books. We read, we read your books. You were written in the West. That the books we read. We, we are not book writers. But there is something about the gospel when it gets into the hearts of people in their own language. So we try to translate the Bible into people's language and to give testimony in, 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 in language that people will understand. And the response is amazing. We see that every day. I visited Gloria with, with her 400 or more children. And that morning, the devotion was powerful. And the children were all crying. And I said, what is it? She said, she asked them a simple question. How many want to repent and stop stealing? The hands went up. She said, okay, those who want to repent and stop stealing, come this side. Jesus will forgive you. Just the words, Jesus will forgive you. They started crying. And they started confessing. Saying, I, stole, I stole my grandmother's flashlight. I stole my mother's purse. You know, it was just amazing what the gospel does. As a matter of fact, I've said to people in my, in my diocese, we're sitting well-dressed, gentlemen and women, but we are all retired thieves. <laughs> My second point will be the necessity for good biblical preaching and teaching. The leaders of Reformation were generally great Bible teachers and preachers. The Bible had caught and inspired them and they wanted to pass this inspiration and that understanding and the fire to others. The word of God was to be shared and spread. That remains the vision, the goal, and the methodology of many Nigerian churches today. The word of God was and is alive and active and cannot be locked away in a dusty library or in an archive. This calls for good biblical teaching and preaching. And such an emphasis and practice in itself is in accordance with biblical teaching and practice. Moses, for example, insisted that the new community of Israel needed to teach each generation as it comes on. Fathers were to teach this to their children. Tell them. Memorize it. Put it as posters. Let them see it. Let them hear it every now and again. And each generation was to pass the same teaching to the next generation. 
so that the word of God uh, is not alien to any generation. But Jesus also comes from that tradition. So he also picked up teaching. And in his own case, we're told he taught us one with authority. So teaching of scripture is very important in the family, outside the family, in the community. The center of our lives as people of God is the word of God. And the reformers didn't downplay that at all. Similarly, St. Paul lays a great emphasis on this. He says to Timothy, do your best, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. If there is any need in Africa, any need at all in Nigeria, it is the need of teachers of the word of God. It is teachers and preachers that will change Africa. Not the many philosophies. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach. Timothy, as a teacher, had to do his homework. Teaching is not easy. It's not easy. Homework. Research. Exegesis. Reading of other related materials. Making sure that what you're going to tell the people is, is the truth. So it's a frightening thing for me all the time to stand in front of the people. Very frightening. Forget about all that I'm standing now. It's only by the grace of God. But it is frightening because I may say just one thing and somebody's faith is destroyed. It's frightening, folks, to mount the pulpit. It's frightening to stand and claim to be teaching the word of God only to be leading people astray. So preachers and teachers have to take due diligence, hard work, and be sure that when they come out, they're saying what the Lord would have them say. John Stott says this, I quote, Nothing is more necessary for the building up of God's church in every age than ample supply of God gifted teachers. It is teaching which builds up the church. It is teachers who are needed the most. One quote. I'm a product of the Church Missionary Society because that's where my father, the man who led my father to Christ, his name was Max Warren. And after one year, as he was teaching my father, he fell ill and had to go back to England. Later on, he became the general secretary of CMS. And my father was passed on to Bishop Bullin, 
who also later on moved on to Sudan and died there. But the Church Mission Society had a strategy handed down by Henry Venn. Beautiful strategy. And I hold on to that. First of all, Church Mission Society would recruit committed Christian missionaries who were genuinely converted. They insisted, I mean, Henry Venn would insist that missionaries who were going out had to be converted and they had to be the best. Full of the Holy Spirit, but also intellectually capable. And wherever these missionaries went for their mission and evangelism, they set up a small school because the earliest people they would meet, they, were, they weren't starting a church. They were starting a community, a community of believers. But they were illiterates. So it was from there, this first class graduates from Oxford and Cambridge would learn the language of the people as the people also uh, taught them the, their language. They also taught the people English. Quality education. And then they set up a little clinic because health was the need. And in the clinic place, before you took medicine, they would pray with you. They would tell you stories about Jesus, the healer. And then they would administer medicine. There was a relationship being built between the missionary and the people and Jesus. So also in the classroom. And so those who came from non-Christian backgrounds encountered Jesus whichever way they go, whether in the hospital or in the classroom, wherever. Jesus was at the center and the word of God was the curriculum. This is the strategy which I still use in Nigeria today as we encourage our churches and and an and evangelist because this is the only way we reach to the non-Christian communities whether they are Muslims or pagans the necessities and the needs of life will bring them your way don't shy away from promoting Jesus the healer, the teacher the forgiver, the redeemer, the savior teaching and preaching go hand in hand and I'll give you a quote from my father. When I came in 78 and told my dad that I was going to seminary, he said to me, Benji, I said, Baba, when you hear Benji, things are okay. But when you hear Benjamin, things are not okay. <laughs> so funny man, the man, very godly man, very good man. He says, Benji, I said, Baba, he says, you should go to Cambridge um, and learn how to teach. I sympathize with him because his background is the people who led him to the Lord and taught him to speak English were from Cambridge. So he had that great respect for Cambridge. If you go to Cambridge, you learn how to teach. You'll be a good teacher. I said, no, Baba, I'm an evangelist. I don't need all that. I want to win the whole world for Jesus. Then he said to me, Benji, a good teacher will always make a good preacher. 
but not all preachers are good teachers. I have learned the hard way. I wish I went to a teacher's college. Because teachers of theology, they may be slow, you think so. If they are committed Christians who know the Lord, teachers of theology, they are the best pastors on earth. The patience to mark illegible writings, poor English, <laughs> terrible construction of paragraphs, and yet they patch us up. They say, no, no, what you can do it, student. Just come. That patience, teachers are fantastic. To look down on teachers of seminary is, 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 is just not right. We're missing it. This is the, the training ground to be teachers of theology. Great people. Put them in the field and they will open up their laboratories and begin to practice. Of course I say that with a little tongue in cheek because in, in the West nowadays I don't know except where Jesus is Lord. Some seminaries no longer put the Bible. That also is dangerous. That's dangerous. Will Sangster says this, not by accident, nor yet the trustful egoism of man was the pulpit given the central place in the reformed churches. It is there of design and devotion. It is there by the logic of things. It is there as the throne of the word of God. All preaching, therefore, must be done with the aim of enabling people to hear the gospel, to return to God, to repent of their sins, and come to Jesus Christ who is able to save, and only Jesus alone. This calls for dedicated pulpit ministry, powerful presentation of expository preaching of God's word in such a way that the listeners will respond to the living God. We must preach Jesus, not ourselves. Let me end this section with the challenges. Like I said yesterday, we looked at Jesus saying that he was sending the disciples out as lambs among wolves. Today now, having seen the centrality of the Bible in the lives of the reformers on the continuing influence and significance of the church today, it is pertinent to conclude by asking who or what are the wolves or challenges that threaten the church today. I'll quickly run through so that we'll have time for questions. First of all, false gospels. The truth is that outright persecution has never killed the church. It has been said correctly that the blood of the martyrs, by Justin Matter, he says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel, is the seed of the church. False teaching, however, can be responsible for the death of a church in a particular location. It is clear from the New Testament 
that it took very little time for false ideas, lack of understanding, half-truths, and deliberate distortions of the gospel to arise. Jesus himself warned the disciples about this. He said, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray. If possible, the elect, but be on your guard. I've told you this beforehand. Paul himself said this, As I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God. So from the New Testament time to date, the challenge of fall gospel is with us. It is always more difficult if the opposition is from within than if it is from without. I mean, for us who live in northern Nigeria, and I've been living actually most of my life in ministry, has been persecution. Well, attempts to kill me. The first time was in 1987. My house was burned. My church was burned. Several, about a hundred other churches and pastors lost their homes and their vicarages. And I was a young pastor, newly married with two little children. So I was wondering, what have I done wrong? Apparently, the Lord was preparing me for worse days ahead. So, coming to face that kind of persecution is far easier than when it is from within. In 1998, at Lambeth Conference, I never believed that a Christian church leader, a bishop, would not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I, I couldn't, I found 98 exciting. It was, a, I mean, I enjoyed my time, by the way. But, I, you know, for me, how did he become a bishop? How did he get, what was he taught in seminary? That Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And he was saying clearly that, you know, Africans, you're believing myths, you know. These are myths, you're believing. I said, how did he become a bishop? What did he take an oath on? Didn't he hold the Bible? And we went back home. It was all over the news. It was a, a Herculean task for us to tell our people that the people who don't believe in Jesus Christ are not us. It's some other people from other parts of the world. Because they just said bishops no longer believe. That was it. And the bishops now are homosexuals. No, no, no. And the Muslims also picked it up. So from within, it's a more difficult thing. It's a more difficult thing. Big heresies become evident in the churches. And they gather for themselves followers that create far more troubles all over. Um, Tribal churches, racial, 
all of those divisions that have nothing to do in fact the gospel tears them down i don't know who's building them up paul said that jesus christ tears the walls of division to pieces and yet some people inside the church are building the walls I was preaching two weeks ago in the eastern parts of Nigeria and it was a synod and some, some of the synod members had said, no, the bishop cannot pass this. We're going, to, we're going to take our ground. The bishop can't. I said, listen, if you want to fight, please don't fight the bishop. We have Boko Haram areas looking for men to fight who send you there. So you go and fight there. Leave the church alone. The church is not a place to fight. Go and fight Boko Haram. This is a place we want to build people's faith. And yet people forget that. So it, persecution wins from within. You know, it's, 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 more, it's more dangerous and difficult to deal with. I once said this. To tell a suffering Christian that they suffer because it is lack of faith, which is another thing that I don't know where it comes from, whether it's from America or somewhere. You know, that if you have faith, you will be rich. If you have faith, you will be healed. If you have faith, you will be, you'll prosper. You know, and that's another teaching. And I said, to tell a suffering Christian that they're suffering because of lack of faith, or that God is more concerned with material prosperity than with spiritual state, is to blind the people to the consumerism of this age and to separate them from the love of Jesus Christ. Too often, people are told that if they join such and such a church, they will move up to the next level or that they will not know any more hardship or sickness during the year. <laughs> Those kinds of theologies have created more hardship for us from within. And recently, there's been an earthquake in the theological world of the Anglican church. And the challenge between following the revisionist theology, modern culture, or traditional stance with the simple Bible teaching supported by real testimonies of God at work in ordinary settings amongst the people. It is, of course, impossible forgive me, <laughs> to detect a false doctrine unless you know the genuine yourself. But the second challenge is the call to serve and suffer. In the world today, the promise of power is tantalizing and tempting. And throughout the world, many who consider themselves to be powerful rulers, lorded over everybody, and no one wants to suffer. But listen to what Jesus says. He says this, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. In contrast to the world's model of leadership and influence, Jesus says, you whom I've called the Christian teacher, the Christian preacher, the missionary, and especially the pastors are to be slaves of all and servants of all. 
Jesus said that he would lay down his life to the, for the world, and he did. Now, Jesus asks us to follow his example. Having obtained mercy, we are asked to lay down our lives for others. This is what mission is all about. The reformers were ready to do that. The missionaries did that. Some came with their coffins to Africa. A young girl, I will never forget, a 19-year-old young girl, Caroline, was her name. She was a student nurse in Vorm, in Jaws. And they brought about 15 Lassa patients, Lassa fever patients. Nobody would come near them because they were contagious. Caroline, a 19-year-old girl, served these people. They died, and she died with them. That image cannot leave me from 1978. But then there are two young missionaries who came to my country in 1907. Came to my home, actually, to my grandfather's place, to my father's place. The older of them was Reverend Fox. The younger was the Dr. Fox. They walked so tirelessly. God blessed their ministry in my hometown, in my father's hometown, that they now went back home. No, Dr. Fox went back home to bring his medical equipments. When he came, his older brother, Reverend Fox, was caught with fever. A few weeks later, he died. Dr. Fox also, on arrival, he died. And the mission headquarters had the difficulty of breaking the news to the parents. And they told them this is what happened to their children. And the parents, prependary Fox himself and his wife, went and sold their land in Oxford and brought back the proceeds and gave it to the Church Mission Society and said, much as we grieve the death of our sons, we can only be consoled if the Lord of the mission continues with the mission for which our children died and they gave their proceeds. Missionaries died for me. What is my life worth if I cannot die for somebody else? These people are not Nigerians. But they gave their lives for the gospel. Their graves is there with us in Joss. And every day I greet them, looking forward to seeing them someday, to thank them for what they did for us. Ajay Crowther is another fantastic missionary. He was a slave. Uh, freed from the boat by Admiral Henry Leake, Royal Navy. And um, he, he received Jesus Christ and was on fire, young man. And he led the first missionary enterprise into Nigeria, coming back in uh, 1842. And reading the story from J.C. Page, published in 19, um, 1879. He, he told the story of Ajay Crowther's disciple who had received Christ and was asked to take the food for the sacrifice by his master. He was a slave of the king. And Joshua had become a Christian. So he said to his master, Master, I will not be able to take this food to the idols because now I belong to Jesus. And the slave boy was told, if you don't do that, I'll kill you. He said, yes, sir. You can kill me. 
my body, my soul, everything belongs to Jesus. If you kill me, I'll go to my master. But to carry this thing, I cannot. And indeed, they tied him, bound him hands, put a stone behind his back, threw him in the lagoon. He died, but he went to be with the Lord for his master. Unlike some of the reformers who were burnt at stake, the vast majority of pastors and preachers, or indeed Christians in the West today, have not had to face this kind of challenge. But the choice to follow Jesus requires a conviction which goes beyond just mere verbal assent. It has to go deep. Deep down in our hearts, life or death. Final challenge is the challenge to maintenance. Maintenance syndrome. Um, much is now being said about evangelism, but before we get effective evangelism, we must have effective evangelists. Evangelism is useless unless it is the work of one devoted to God, willing and glad to suffer all things for, for God, penetrated by the att att attractiveness of God in his heart and soul. A church that is not on the move will soon become a maintenance workshop incapable of producing anything new, uh, able only to maintain old, worn out and dying commodities. And Jesus shows this to his disciples and he calls them to be evangelists, to be on the move. A missionary is to be on the move all the time, not to just remain and maintain. The disciples' concern is to seek and to find out safe or unsafe areas. I remember speaking here in, in the U.S. Um, on a mission conference, and after I had spoken at this conference, everybody at that conference was going to either East Africa or South Africa. I mean, I was at the speaker from West Africa, so I asked, why is everybody going to East Africa or South Africa? They said, well, you know, West Africa is not safe. And I said, excuse me, your grandparents came here and died when there was no police, no Nigeria, no nation, no customs, nothing. Some of them died on the high seas. God is not calling us only to safe areas. If God were calling to safe areas, I would not come to America because everybody's afraid that I might get shot. Nowhere is safe. If you are a gospeler, your hands are hid in God, in Christ. Get on with the job. Move on. Safe or unsafe areas. Just get going. The church cannot stand still. Let me end. The Bible contains the living word of God. Our indebtedness to the reformers is a grade and can only be repaid by our own manner of living, of teaching, of evangelism, of preaching. We have a great inheritance. Our task now is to put this to the fullest use, whether in Africa, in America, or anywhere else in the world. We have a gospel to proclaim. We have a gospel 
worth living for. We have a gospel worth dying for. Are you ready? Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.